in times past, specifically the Victorian era, when a child died, families with means, the more affluent families, were known to commission a life-sized wax replica of their deceased child for the funeral. This wax effigy mirrored the child. It was dressed in the child's garments, and actual hair from the young one was added for realism. Typically, these wax representations depicted the child in a serene pose, eyes closed, and in a peaceful slumber. The back of the head was intentionally flattened, ensuring that the doll lay gracefully. At the wake, the effigy doll took center stage. Especially if a child had died from some sort of wasting sickness that left the poor little one looking anything but healthy. The effigy doll could remind mourners of the child in their youthful vigor. Then after the funeral, the dolls were often left graveside. For infants, wax effigies were nestled in cribs, receiving care akin to a living baby. Clothes were changed and other nurturing gestures. Their bodies, made of cloth and weighted with sand, provided a lifelike feel when they were cradled. If that doll wasn't left graveside, it might be framed. In the case of older children, only the head and shoulders were replicated in wax, but they were designed with flat backsides, again, so that they could lay gracefully, and that also helped for easy placement within a picture frame. These wax effigies represented a poignant keepsake of a lost child. This is Death Becomes Her, and I'm your host, Layla Kelly. In Victorian England, mortality rates were high. Diseases like scarlet fever, diphtheria, and measles spread through and ravaged communities. With the growth of industrialization, traumatic deaths became more common. And then in addition to the deaths, there were those that were considered normal and natural, so death was everywhere. And for the Victorians, death was understood as a reality. It was talked about, it was planned for. Some brides were even known to include a funeral shroud in their wedding trousseau. Death was an expectation, an inescapable eventuality. And with death came grief, and with grief came the public display known as mourning. The time period following the death of a loved one was sacred. It was a time to slow down. Social calendars were cleared, allowing time for solemn reflection. Ordinary clothes and jewelry were traded for somber fabrics and colors signifying grief and the spiritual darkness of bereavement. These practices, they brought acknowledgement of the loss. They were an outward sign identifying the mourner. They elicited sympathy from the community, and they signaled the public to treat this person with grace and kindness. And those are truly beautiful sentiments. But if you have ever watched a Victorian period piece, you know that sentiment must yield to etiquette. 
The royals, the aristocracy, and the upper class were all ruled by etiquette, and that trickled down to those with less means, until the grief-stricken of all class and rank found themselves subject to what some called the cult of mourning, a romanticized, fashionable, trendy, and oppressive version of mourning. Recognizing the complicated, convoluted, and ever-changing rules of decency, a man named William C.J. saw an opportunity. He set out to guide the grieving public through the protocols of mourning. In 1841, on London's famous Regent Street, he opened Jay's London General Mourning Warehouse, a one-stop bereavement shop. A mourning woman needn't worry about propriety when she employed Jay's well-trained staff. Her every need was going to be taken care of. She was assured that her new mourning wardrobe would be the, quote, finest quality and nothing if not fashionable. The fashion catalogs were quick to point out that fashion in design, construction, and embellishment may be said to change, not only every month, but well nigh every week. So ladies dare not attempt to navigate mourning without employing the expertise of a mourning emporium for fear that they would be out of fashion. Every consideration was addressed. What of the lady of fine repute who suffered sudden mourning and had not a thing to wear? She certainly couldn't leave the home and head to Regent Street without proper mourning attire. That would be scandalous. The Jay's catalog had a suggestion for that situation as well. It said, Ladies living at a distance may be supplied at their own residence with an army of experienced dressmakers and milliners, ready to travel to any part of the kingdom, free of expense to purchasers, when the emergencies of sudden or unexpected mourning require the immediate execution of mourning orders. Carefully curated, elaborate displays of grief lasting years or months were expected among polite society. But while many were swept up in propriety, unwilling to breach etiquette, others were critical. One outspoken critic was Charles Dickens. Yes, the Oliver Twist tale of two cities, Charles Dickens. In 1852, he wrote a scathing essay on the topic. Here's just a snippet. Several years have now elapsed since it began to be clear to the comprehension of most rational men that the English people had fallen into a condition much to be regretted in respect of their funeral customs. A system of barbarous show and expense was found to have gradually erected itself above the grave, which, while it could possibly do no honor to the memory of the dead, did great dishonor to the living as inducing them to associate the most solemn of human occasions with dishonest debt, profuse waste, and bad example in an utter oblivion of responsibility. No class of society escaped. In spite of Dickens' impassioned comments, mourning continued to trend toward increasingly more elaborate displays. Lavish funerals, ornate grave monuments, expensive keepsakes like the wax dolls mentioned at the outset. And with the death of Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, in 1861, the cult of mourning reached its peak. England, Europe, and America were mesmerized with Queen Victoria's unrivaled grief. 
Morning warehouses popped up from New York to Paris, offering stationery, parasols, coffins, morning jewelry, death photography, salesmen often preying on the naivety of those desperate to keep up with the latest trends. But a cultural shift was happening. Society was beginning to grow weary of the exploitation of the grief-stricken, burdened by ritual. Mourning had left many in financial ruin, even homeless. All the same, in some circles, mourning etiquette was still hanging on. And then came World War I, with its poison gas, trench warfare, airplanes, flamethrowers, and machine guns. Millions upon millions died. The Spanish flu claimed millions more. The oppressive, drawn-out mourning rituals and grand funerals of the past became impractical and appeared self-indulgent in the face of such large-scale community loss. The world had changed, and a new culture around death was emerging. So here we are, 110 years after the start of World War I. What have we learned? How are we doing when it comes to grief and mourning? Has our culture struck a healthy balance emotionally, practically, and financially? Last week, the 2024 Cost of Dying report was released. The annual report provides insight into the burdens families face after a loved one's passing. Here are a couple numbers from that report. Of the 62% of companies that do have a specific bereavement policy, the days offered for bereavement leave average 3.8 to 5.9, so between three and six days. However, the amount of time it takes on average to wrap up an estate if you're the executor is 18 months. Those few days in your benefits package will likely be used to plan the funeral, but administrative tasks associated with a death will go far, far beyond funeral planning. You may need to research and apply for benefits, deal with insurance and pensions, make decisions about your loved one's belongings, go through files, start probate, manage property. All of these tasks add up to a part-time job in addition to what you already have on your plate. Consider also that 20% of grievers report trouble concentrating on work and 18% are significantly less productive. Looking at these numbers, it would appear that after a loss, we can't think straight, but in spite of that, we're likely to go straight back to work, and in addition to our normal work-life responsibilities, we also are going to take on a mountain of brand new tasks that need to be sorted. So what do you think? Do you think we have it figured out? Has our culture struck a satisfactory balance when it comes to bereavement? How about financially? Is the cost of dying as burdensome today as it was in the Victorian age? Well, it's not looking good. The total cost that the average family paid to handle everything after a loss was $12,616. That's on average. Some had to pay for those expenses with credit cards or loans, and 35% of the time, those expenses weren't reimbursed or were only reimbursed partially. And what of the funeral itself? The average funeral cost is currently $5,666, representing the largest death-related expenditure. 
Contrast that with data that indicates that the average American family has less than $1,000 in savings. For many, funerals are a huge financial burden, and many will feel some level of pressure to provide a certain standard of funeral for a loved one. Choosing the most economical arrangements may not feel like a reasonable option. I want to revisit Charles Dickens' essay. Here's something else that he wrote. The competition among the middle classes for superior gentility in funerals, the gentility being estimated by the amount of ghastly folly in which the undertaker was permitted to run riot, descended even to the very poor, to whom the cost of funeral customs was so ruinous and so disproportionate to their means that they formed clubs among themselves to defray such charges. This struck me as interesting. Back in 1852, the expense of funerals was such that people had to join together to cover costs. They had to crowdfund. Does that sound familiar? Crowdfunding giant GoFundMe says more than 125,000 memorial fundraisers are created on its site, and more than $330 million is raised every year. As the cost of dying increases, more and more families are turning to crowdfunding. There are now a variety of crowdfunding platforms that specialize solely in funeral funding. These include Everloved, Fund the Funeral, and Funeralocity. In the Victorian era, social pressure and impossible standards of etiquette burden mourners emotionally and financially. Today, the social pressure may have eased, but economic pressures, high cost of living, and fast-paced lives, we, just like our Victorian predecessors, find ourselves burdened emotionally and financially. The details may have changed, but we're still struggling to find a balance when it comes to grief and mourning. It's easy to look at Victorian mourning as wasteful and frivolous, but there's at least one category where they have us beat. They were masters at holding space for their grief. They weren't afraid to talk about death, to plan for death, and to outwardly express their grief. We can learn from them, not in their excesses, but in honoring the simple truth that death will come to us all. At some point, we will all lose someone. And at some point, we will eventually be the one lost. When we make peace with these simple truths, we give ourselves the freedom to take action, to plan for the expected or the unexpected. We can set aside funds, purchase modest insurance policies, organize and simplify our lives. When we plan ahead, we give ourselves and our loved ones freedom to grieve with fewer burdens pressing in. That's a gift that our loved ones will truly appreciate. Here's a tip for where to start. Have a conversation about death. Not a creepy, weird conversation. Well, if that's your thing, creepy and weird is fine. But I was thinking more like a simple question. Maybe something like, did you know that in Victorian times, affluent families had wax dolls made of their dead children? Just throw it out there. Go from there. Okay, so as I say that, I just realized that that may be a little bit creepy and on the weird side whatever. You can come up with your own question. That's not the point. The point is just have a conversation and keep having conversations. Tap your inner Victorian and normalize death talk. Talking about death 
won't kill you. I promise. Thank you for listening to Death Becomes Her. As always, you can find me on Instagram at leavingwelldeathdoula, or you can reach me at leavingwellmt.com. If you have questions or comments about today's episode or questions about where to get started with planning, send me a message. I would be happy to send you some resources and get you on your way.